Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with Vincent Harding, the late, magnificent civil rights elder. There is, as always, a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. And we'll get him set up here in just a second. Thanks. Can you hear me, Dr. Harding? I can hear you. All right. We may need to pull that microphone just a little closer to you. Fairly close. There you go. Tell us what you had for breakfast this morning. I am telling you what I wished I had for breakfast this morning. That's fine. I'm going to need to sit up in this chair, huh? Yeah, probably so. So that we can hear you fine. So how's the voice going? It sounds really good. Okay, good. All right. I believe uh, Miss Tippett is with us on the line right now. I am. Hi, Krista. Hello. Krista Tippett, I want to tell you that I am one of your fans. Oh, good. That and makes I, me happy. I'm one of yours, too. <laughs> we, have, we have many common friends at Fetzer. Oh, right. Fetzer. Yeah, I've, and, I've been reading your piece that you wrote. Yes. Yes. Are you Parker Palmer? Is he someone you... He's a dear friend. Oh, yeah. We work together at a Quaker center right. called Pendle Hill. Oh, was he there when you were there? I was there when he was there. Yeah, okay. Yeah, he's a good friend, too. So he's the person I've kind of been in conversation with about trying to read the tea leaves. I will. When you uh, talk to him again. All right. And Sheila Devaney is someone we have in common, too. Oh, yes. I was just on the phone with Sheila just a few days ago. Oh, okay. Well, uh, it was delightful to... um, delve into your thinking and writing and work and I hope we I think we should just plunge in um yeah Chris I'm ready whenever all right you are. okay so um where I want to start is where I start with everyone um which is to hear a little bit about the religious and spiritual background of your childhood of your earliest life mm-hmm. were you raised Mennonite no no okay let me shall I start off yes, with that yes yes I had the marvelous fortune, gift, blessing of being raised by a mother who shortly after I was born became a single mother and who had just great hopes for me. I was born and raised in Harlem and the South Bronx in New York. And one of the things that my mother wisely did for this only child and for this single mother on welfare was that she joined a fascinating little church in Harlem Mm -hmm. called Victory Tabernacle Seventh-day Christian Church. Mm -hmm. It was an offshoot from the Seventh-day Adventist denomination It was one of those black groups that developed after the Garvey movement had had its Uh, impact on New York and on 
uh, the black churches, which were a part of white denominations. So by the time that my mother and I got there, I was maybe uh, six or seven years old. The church had just recently become an independent one. These were magnificent women and men, a mixture of uh, working class, professional class, all kinds of class. And they were people who were very, very serious about religion, who, like most Seventh-day Adventist type folks, took the Bible with great seriousness. And that was the context in which I grew up. But Krista, for me, what was most important on the deepest spiritual levels was that these were all people who expected great things of me. (laughs) Right, right. And they loved me, held me, recognized that I had possibilities that I didn't recognize myself at the outset, and they held me and guided me and nurtured me. So that's where I would mark my own best and deepest religious beginnings Mm. in the love of this small, maybe a hundred-member church community that still exists. I had to leave them after a while because I'd come to different conclusions uh, than they did. But even after I left, what I found out over the years was that love trumps doctrine Mm. every time. And I'm still deeply connected to some of the folks that I grew up with Mm. in that church 60, 70 years ago. Mm. So, you know, I want to spend most of our time talking about the present day. And mm-hmm. um, and I want you to bring the fullness of, you know, what you, of your moral imagination and spiritual imagination that emerged from all your experiences, including, of course, that and the civil rights movement. Um, so I, I, want to, I want to bring the, the lessons of the past into the present, which is so much of what you're about as it is. Yes. But I would like briefly just to hear a little bit about how you know, how did your life wind around from that upbringing in Harlem to um, becoming involved with that that movement, um, that of which you mm. say the movement of human transformation in the 1960s? <laughs> oh, Krista, <laughs> how shall we travel this journey in an efficient way? Yeah. I was drafted into the Army after attending the City College of New York, uh, Columbia School of Journalism, and it was that military experience that began to open up the new directions for me. One of the things that happened during basic training was that as someone who loved sports and athletics, I was deeply taken, crazily enough, by basic training. And I enjoyed the movement and the activity and the outsideness. And one of the things that I enjoyed was learning how to shoot a rifle and learning how to be pretty good at it. And one day at Fort Dix during basic training, while I was down there on my belly getting my uh, rifle into position to hit that target, 
something just seemed to say to me, so, so Vincent, you are enjoying this, and you think that that's what the Army is paying all this money for, for you to be able to enjoy this. Mm. Well, Vincent, you are being trained to kill a man before he can even see you. And what does Jesus have to do with that? And that was the beginning of another path uh, for me because the Army was the first time that I really had an opportunity to take the time to do my own reading, my own studying, Hmm. my own seeking. And I came to feel myself very deeply attracted to Jesus of Nazareth and especially to his call to find another way to be in the world than the way of attacking the enemy. Mm. So that was the beginning for me, my dear. And then I ended up out in Chicago uh, at uh, the University of Chicago uh, to study in the history department there. And while I was there, I ran into these wonderfully strange people who I had never heard about, first running into them in the texts that I was studying, and then on the campus, some folks called Mennonites. I see. Okay, so I see that connection, how that bridge was formed. Yes, and it was clear that what I was wrestling with, they had been wrestling with for centuries Mm. And it turned out that at that particular time, the Mennonites were experimenting with trying to develop an interracial congregation in uh, Chicago. So when are we talking here? What years, roughly? We're talking about the mid-50s. I went to Chicago uh, in 1955, just in the midst of the Montgomery bus boycott. Uh, And... The key thing here is that, like so many younger academics, I was in my late uh, 20s when I went out there, uh, we at Woodlawn Mennonite Church began talking about what does it mean for us to believe in sisterhood and brotherhood in the body of Christ as children of God? What does that mean to do that in Chicago? compared to what we would be experiencing if we were in the South. Mm. And we kept talking about that. Mm. What if we were in the South and trying to do this? And a group of us, three whites, two blacks, finally said, well, why don't we go and find out? And Mm. we got into a station wagon and pledged ourselves that we were going to drive as much through the South as we could and promised ourselves and our community and the spirit who was with us that we would not allow ourselves to be separated, Hmm. whatever happened, Hmm. because we were brothers. There were five guys. And it was in that context that we met uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, As we traveled in Alabama, we decided that we couldn't go through this state without trying to see uh, King. None of us had ever met him uh, before, but 
He would have been in it, his 20s then too, right? He, yes, uh-huh. we were all about the same age, uh-huh. late 20s. This trip actually took place in 1958. Okay. So he was just 29 years old, and I was 27 years old. So we <laughs> went into his house at Coretta Scott's invitation uh, when he was recuperating from that wound that he had received in New York during a book uh, tour. And he just welcomed us into his bedroom. He was in his pajamas and gown and said he wanted to just meet us and talk to us. And then he started kidding us. And as you may know, he was a great kidder, and he's never stopped kidding us about how happy he was that we had made it through Mississippi. <laughs> and so, but at the, at the time that we were getting ready to leave, we stayed there for about two hours with him. He looked at me and the other black guy, uh, George Ed Riddick, and said, listen, you guys are connected with these Mennonites. You know something about nonviolent action. Right. You were to come down here and spend some time with us. Mm. And that was the invitation, huh. which eventually led later on, uh, three years later, after I was married, for my wife and I to go south as representatives of the service committee of the Mennonite churches. Wow, that's an amazing uh, story. And that was uh, the beginning of our real deep connection right. uh, with that movement and that experience and with King himself. Because when we eventually then moved to Atlanta, it turned out that the real estate people who were helping us to find a place where we could develop a movement center found a place right around the corner from Martin and Coretta. Hmm. So we were neighbors and In friends and co-workers, <laughs> and it was, a, it was a magnificent experience. So, yes. Sorry, I'm, just, I'm hearing a voice in my headphones from behind the glass. Yes. Okay. Oh, Okay. My producer is saying, I think you're hitting a table out of passion. Yeah, uh, I get involved with passion. Can you try to control that? <laughs> can I control I don't passion? want you to control your passion, just your hand as part of I'll, it. Okay. I'll do my All best. All right, okay. <laughs> do your best, and we'll work with what, we'll work with what we've got. Um, all right, so, so as I said, what we want to talk about is lessons, you, things, what you know, what you learned um, that can be of relevance to us now. And... Uh, for example, uh, one of the words that's getting tossed around a lot is civility and civil. And I noticed that you've said, you've stated very emphatically that, that you think to call that movement, that transformation that you were part of in the 1960s, to reduce it to civil rights, <laughs> is that, that civility in that case is, is not a big enough word. And, um, you know, and I, I'm, what I'm hearing as I have this conversation now is a lot of people feel like civility is not a big enough word for us right now either. So talk to me about that. Do you have any thoughts about that? Mm. Yes, I think that um, there are many things that have come to my mind, Krista, during this discussion that's going on. And interestingly enough, I hadn't quite made the connection that you are making now with my own Hmm. thought, but that's wonderful. That's why we need each other. (laughs) Um, I have felt increasingly that what we are really talking about is not how we can have more civil conversation, 
But what we're talking about in the context of our society, for one thing, is how we can learn how to have a democratic conversation. Mm. That is what we need. We are absolutely amateurs at this matter of building a democratic nation made up of many, many peoples of many kinds, from many connections and convictions, and from many experiences. Mm. And to know how, after all the pain that we have caused each other, to know how to carry on a conversation that takes place in the midst of great changes going on in the society where power roles are being challenged and perhaps changed, where new people are coming on the scene, where we are discovering the gifts that had been pushed aside uh, before. All of this makes for a very nervous, uncertain time. Right. <clears throat> and you know when and you, that's you, why we need to learn mm -hmm. how to operate in it, how even to talk to each other in it, how to carry on democratic conversation that, in a sense, invites us to hear each other's best arguments mm. and best contributions so that we can then figure out how do we put these things together to create a more perfect union. Right. A more perfect union is a phrase you, you use a lot in your writing. And, you know, I think, like, the word democracy, like a lot of words we need, is, mm -hmm. is kind of, uh, it doesn't have its full resonance, I would say, right? It's, it's, it's politicized. I mean, it means something different to different people. So mm -hmm. I, I, I found that that way you keep pointing at the question you've kept pointing for years, for decades, you know, that, that asking about how to be democratic is really taking seriously that question of living into a more perfect union. I find that helpful as a way to open that word up. Open and for me, Krista, mm -hmm. it also opens up the question of what does it mean to be truly human? Mm. How are we meant to relate to each other in a way that builds our common humanity. Mm -hmm. Democracy is simply another way of speaking about that, quest that question. Religion is another way of speaking about that question. What is our purpose in this world, and is that purpose related to our responsibilities to each other and to the world itself? All of that seems to me to be a variety of languages getting at the same reality. Right. And it seems to me that, uh, as you said, there's so much going on right now. And there's change happening at all kinds of levels. I mean, right there are the momentary struggles and crises. And then there's this backdrop of kind of this mm -hmm. magnitude of technological change, I think, that you're talking about and social change. Um but it seems to me that the opportunity, just as you say, is, is, is to talk about the fullness of what it means to be human and how also much of this change can 
give us whole new ways to think about that. And yes. I mean, so you mentioned the religious piece of it. And I, I do want to say over the years, I've been very aware that the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. and the, has been kind of secularized, came, mm-hmm. right? I mean, he was a civil rights leader. <laughs> um, you very strongly make the link in your telling of this, the story of that time, that the, the healing link between religion and democratic transformation. Would you talk to me about that a little bit, about what we've forgotten about the spiritual and religious dimensions of that? Let's remember, Krista, that that community that helped to create King and that he then helped to nurture was a community deeply grounded in the life of religion and spirituality. This was their way of being. And for many people in that community, indeed for most people in that community, it made great sense to them that Martin should again and again use the language and the ideas of the religious community to express what he was going about in the political stance. For instance, everyone near him knew that he took very seriously this traditional, beautiful terminology when he said that what he was seeking for was not simply equality or rights, but what he was seeking for was the creation of the beloved community Mm. that he saw everything that crushed against our best human development, like segregation, like white supremacy, that all of those things were pushing against our best human development and our best communal development. And therefore, when he moved to break down those barriers, those laws, those practices. He was doing it not simply as an act of civil action, but a deep spiritual responsibility. He was saying again and again that he was speaking as a loving pastor to this nation, that he cared so deeply about the future of the nation and its best possibilities for creating a beloved community that he had to work, he had to call us, he had to bring to us the the prophetic word that sometimes hurt a great deal for us to hear. But all of this was coming out of the stance of the loving pastor seeing our best possibilities, like my church 
community saw in me. He saw it in this nation. Somehow, people like Jimmy Baldwin and others couldn't imagine Malcolm for a certain time, couldn't imagine how how Martin could see those possibilities. But I think he was seeing it because he was looking with an eye that was deeply filled by love and compassion. And that eye opens us up to see many things that might otherwise be missed. You know, I want to read some some lines you wrote about King's spirituality that just are very intriguing and fresh. Uh, you wrote, King's had a spirituality that makes it impossible for you to avoid the folks in trouble. Mm. You know, you said black folks were simply one of God's beloved people. King had to figure out what you do with all the other beloved people. Mm. You're going to especially the messed up beloved people that don't know their beloved. Yes. yes. He, he was very clear in his life that as he said, um, for instance, in, in the 60s when he was in Chicago, working uh, among the poor there, he said very clearly, I choose to identify with the poor. I choose to identify with the underprivileged. I I choose to give my life uh, for those who are left out of the sunlight of opportunity. And he saw this not simply in this country, but throughout the world. And that is part of the reason why he was so absolutely clear that he had to speak to this country about the terribleness of what it was doing in Vietnam because of the way that it was affecting the poor in this country and the poor in that country. So when did you start the the Veterans of of Hope Project? Ah... Different kinds of starts, Christian. Okay. Uh, well, t- I mean, just talk, tell me about 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 that, about what mm-hmm. you do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, tell me about that. Okay. One of the things that happened after my wife and I, uh, my late wife, Rosemary, and I uh, came out of the day-to-day work of... Uh, the movement in the South, and we were teaching in a variety of settings, uh, colleges, uh, universities, uh, seminaries. What we tried to do again and again was to bring the magnificent human beings that we had met in these movements into direct contact with our students so that our students could see them not simply as persons in a paragraph in a book, but as living and lively and magnificent human beings. One of the things that we did with some help uh, from uh, a very enlightened foundation uh, was to try to do each summer a set of week-long retreats called Spirit and Struggle. And in those retreats, we brought together people that we had known from the movement. We brought together uh, people who had been involved in movements um, from other societies, uh, from other parts of our own society, and 
had them in this week-long engagement with younger people who were trying to find their way. And I remember very specifically that at one of those spirit and struggle retreats, uh, as a part of our regular uh, process, we asked people to tell something about their stories, especially how they got involved in work for transformative uh, change in this country. Uh, and as one of the people, the elders, the veterans, um, was telling her story, this was Zahara Simmons, who had been deeply involved with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, uh, in Mississippi especially, and then had gone on uh, to uh, take part in the Nation of Islam and now has become an Orthodox Muslim herself and a teacher uh, of, of Islam. As she was telling her story, telling of the ways in which she was working on the society at the same time constantly working on her own life, one of the young men in there stopped her at a certain point and said, listen, how come we don't know your story? We've got to know mm. that story. Right. We, don't read, we don't hear it. We don't see it. And it was at that kind of moment that it became clear to Rosemary and me that we needed to find some institutional way for these stories, especially the stories of women and men who have been working for decades to transform themselves and this nation and other nations, that we needed to find a way to make those stories available to a younger generation. So, and you know, that's what we're doing I know. with the Veterans of Hope. And this this idea of storytelling and the importance yes. of stories in um, the importance of stories just for human beings in general, but in a moment like this in particular, mm. um, in yes. cultivating wisdom, yes. um, comes up so much. And yet, yes. I feel like we don't. I don't know if this if we don't have the forms for it in this mm. culture, or mm. if it's happening under the surface and not being pointed at i mean you are doing this i mean how do you yeah and and i also think some people who may not have been who may not have experienced this uh power of storytelling it can sound maybe a little squishy right oh yeah, we, if we just tell right. our stories that's all right but that is the way human community has developed over the millennia that the storytellers bring the history of the experience of the people of the group so that those who are new will know where they came from and what their own possibilities and directions might be my own sense to uh, krista is that there is something deeply built into us that needs story itself that story is a source of nurture that we cannot become really true human beings hmm. for ourselves and for each others without story. And to find ways in which to tell it, to share it, to create it, to encourage younger people to create their own stories. For instance, 
in the work that we do with the Veterans of Hope, we also encourage the younger people to find the elders, to find the veterans, not the celebrities, not the TV stars, but those folks who nobody else knows have lived such magnificent lives. Find them and then sit with them and learn how to ask the right questions so that the opening uh, can take place. I think that this country cannot become its best self until we find ways more effectively of institutionalizing that process Mm. of sharing the stories of the elders. Right. You know, the whole notion of elders is also something we've lost culturally, isn't it? Um, yes. People ask me, have asked me over the years, like, what, what do we do in our programming for young people? And I noticed that there's an assumption behind that, that young people could only listen to other young people their right. age. <laughs> And I think that's insulting to young people. I mean, and I often say, well, we do have younger voices on the show, of course, but I I also am aware that some of the programs, the conversations I have that are most gripping for younger people are the voices of elders. But that's what I find constantly, Mm -hmm. that younger people sense their own need and know that they are not listening to these voices simply to copy the experiences of the past because that's impossible and undesirable. But they know that there is something in those experiences that has some connection to them, and they want to, to know it, to feel it, to experience it. And so you're right. The younger people themselves recognize how much we need to be connected to each other, to stay in community with one another, and as Martin said, to find out how we develop a community that really is deeply committed to the best self of the others, Mm. and then go on from there. You know, when you say that we as human beings have a built-in need for stories. Um, I'm just thinking as you're speaking, we also, it's, it's, it, the point of storytelling is not just, not just telling the stories, right, but mm-hmm. appropriating the stories. And, yes. and so it strikes me also what your work shows is that we human beings also know what to do with stories, right? So that, as you say, the young people you work with know to take those stories as tools and pieces of empowerment in this day, this year. For their own best work, because now uh, it's a powerful time in this country for young people and others to be asking the question, and what are we for? Mm. Uh, I think that that's one of those uh, sets of unclarities that we were talking about before, Krista, where where we're trying to figure out what's going on. Those vast Uh, open questions of our time. Mm Yes. Do we exist for some reason other than competing with China or finding uh, the best uh, possible technological advances? Are there some things that are even deeper that we are meant for, meant to be, meant to do, uh, meant to achieve 
Jimmy Baldwin used to like to talk about us achieving ourselves, finding Mm. who we are, what we're for, and making that possible uh, for each other. And so we've—you're right about this. You know, the story. Just as you were speaking, what I was thinking about, Krista, was when the mother with the baby at her bosom starts telling stories. It is clearly not just to pass on information, Mm -hmm. but to engage in connection and community. And what I find is that even in some of the strangest situations, most often where I go, where I speak, where I share, I start out by asking people to tell a little of their stories. And it is amazing what people discover of themselves, right. of their connections, of their community. Right. And it, it's, it's wonderful. You know, I've learned that too. To ask someone even to tell a little of their story is to give them a gift. Because yes. we don't get asked that question and we do learn as much as we tell. Um, you know, you wrote a very important book, Hope and History, um, 1990, I believe. Uh, yeah, I think that was, was about or, the time. You must mm-hmm. have been writing it in the 80s. There's a story you tell that, again, I felt offered up a really practical image for now. Um, it was about a conversation, encounter you were having in a hard neighborhood in Boston, and mm-hmm. a young man named Daryl. Yes. Would you tell that story about signposts, his image of signposts? Hmm. Boy, I'm not sure that I'm going to remember it, but I have the basic outline in my mind, the details are going to be sketchy. But what I remember from that story was that a dear young friend of mine, uh, Eugene Rivers, young at that time, oh, right. I guess Jean, Jean is a good Still busy old. in Boston. He's still busy in Boston. <laughs> yeah. That, that, by the way, is one of the characteristics of many of the elders uh, that we have interviewed in the Veterans Project, that people are persistent, that they go on and on and on, Mm. something that is not appreciated in this uh, soundbite society. If you don't get it told, done, uh, accomplished in 10 minutes or 10 days or even 10 years, then you surely give up and turn away. But people like Gene uh, and others, Grace Boggs, do you know that name, by no, the way, Krista? No, I don't. That's somebody that you ought to have on this uh, program. Grace Boggs is one of the great women who came out of a Chinese ancestry, first generation in this country, married eventually uh, a black man from Alabama who was a union organizer in Detroit. And the two of them, Grace and Jimmy Boggs, became a tremendous team until uh, Jimmy died some years ago. 
Grace is now 95. (laughs) And in Detroit, she is one of the primary encouragers of the young people there not to be swept away by all of the talk about the end of Detroit, about the the failures of Detroit. But she is working with young people to help them to become those who build again, create again. Well, all of that takes us away from the story, <laughs> but also illustrates the story. It does, yeah. I'm, I met this young man uh, in Eugene's apartment uh, where he was gathering some of the young people from the Roxbury area, um, who many of whom had got involved uh, with gangs and drugs and a number of other uh, factors that would destructive to their lives, and this young man um, came up just to sit next to me because he wanted to talk in a more personal way. It turned out that he was one of the leaders uh, of uh, the drug-running folks uh, at the time. But what he said to me was that he really felt that one of the reasons why He had gone in the way that he had gone, not trying in any way to excuse himself, was the fact that he, like many other young people, were operating in a situation where they felt it was just very, very dark all around them. And what they needed were, as he put it, some some signposts, some lights that would in other people's lives, yeah, help l- them. Live human signposts, you see. Yes, uh-huh. yes. That would help them to see the possibilities for themselves. And I've always felt that one of the things that we do badly in our educational process, uh, especially working uh, with so-called marginalized young people, is that we educate them to figure out how quickly they can get out of the darkness and get into some much more pleasant uh, situation when what is needed again and again are more and more people like Gene who will stand in that darkness, who will not run away from those deeply hurt communities and will open up uh, possibilities that other people can't see in any other way except seeing it through human beings who care about them. So that is, for me, one of the stories that I I live with, that Mm. I think that we human beings are meant to be lights, sources of light for each other. And if we... teach young people to run away from the darkness rather than to open up the light in the darkness to be the candles, the signposts, then we are doing great harm to them and the communities uh, that they have come out of. You know, you, <clears throat> you said um, the, the light tends to shine on celebrities and 
And it's also mm-hmm. true that, I mean, Eugene Rivers did get a lot of attention a few years mm-hmm. ago, but it's, mm-hmm. it's like that people get their 15 minutes of fame. <laughs> I think this word signpost and this image of signpost is really, really important. I think it's an important piece of practical vocabulary. Um, I, I think about, um, you said a minute ago about elders, that what you also tell young people is that they have to find the elders, right? I, yes, I've thought a yes. lot over the years about the, the the teaching in the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament that I think has resonance across the traditions of developing eyes to see and ears to hear. Mm-hmm. I think of that as almost a, a, a spiritual discipline that the 21st century makes more necessary. That whole idea of discipline is one that clearly we have cast aside except when we're talking about technological development or military development. Mm -hmm. Um, When we're talking about it in those terms, we still use the terminology of discipline. And it seems to me that we need, again, to recognize that to develop the best humanity, the best spirit, the best community, there needs to be discipline, practices of exploring. How do you do that? Right. How do we work together? How, to go back to our conversation, how do we talk together in ways that will open up our best capacities and our best gifts? And the discipline, I think, the discipline of developing a democratic community is something that we still need to figure out. My own feeling that I try to share again and again, Krista, is that when it comes to creating a multiracial, multiethnic, multireligious democratic society, we are still a developing nation. (laughs) We've only been really thinking about this for about half a century. And there's still so much that we don't know, so much that we can't afford to be bombing other people into with our knowledge because we have so little But my own deep, deep conviction is that the knowledge, like all knowledge, is available to us if we seek it. The older I get, the more I am convinced that that magnificent madman, Jesus, was really talking about something very truthful and powerful when he said, You know, if you allow yourself to really hunger and thirst after the right way, then if you will not back off from that hunger and that thirst, if you will just keep after it, then you will find the way. You will be filled. The way will find you. And I think that that determination to find a truly democratic society and to create the truly beloved community, 
Uh, those are things that can be available to us if we're willing to work with each other mm. and work with the universe uh, on developing them. They don't come free and easy. They are tough, tough tasks uh, for us to take on. And that question, uh, how do we do it, is absolutely the question that I think is rising to the surface past our calls for civil discourse, moral imagination. But, you know, some of the tools you offer up, some of the answers to that question, are also quite wonderful. I mean, the discipline is mixed with the arts and creativity, yes, right? I yes. mean, you talk about your memory of those years of the 60s, that hard fight that also contained so much violence and darkness. You say you have a memory of people singing their freedom. Yes. <sighs> Tremendous creativity. That's, I, um, I go back to some of the old black preacher, speaker uh, practices by putting uh, letters and words together. When I think about Martin, I think about Martin with the three C's. <laughs> Courage, compassion, and creativity. It seems to me that that's what Gandhi was always making clear to his uh, followers, that there can be no real work for nonviolent, active change without tremendous creativity. Mm -hmm. And I think that the stoking of our creative capacities is one of the jobs that uh, is still necessary for us. I'm always talking to my young hip-hop uh, young people about the fact that we need some new songs uh, from the hip-hop generation that will speak about the beloved community yeah. in whatever terminology they choose now. But we need some music that people can join together in to express their great need and desire for a better world. Do they engage you in that conversation? Oh, yes, they do. We have a, a fantastic time as we try to figure out, and now what are the new songs? Yeah. And what are the new words? So I mean, For instance, let yeah. me just mention yeah, one word that we've been working with lately. I've been on a campaign encouraging people as we think about the beloved community to stop using this word minority. Mm. That there is something negative about that terminology because it always uh, suggests that somebody else is the majority. Right. And the fact is that we are all now creating a new majority. We are all part of this beloved community. In community, the concept of minority simply doesn't work. You don't have mm. a minority in a family. Right. And so we have got to get new words, new songs, new possibilities for ourselves. And again, that, that phrase, beloved community, I'm just pointing this out for listeners, you know, was, was this phrase from the gospel, which 
Martin Luther King used so evocatively yes, to describe yes, yes. that community of the civil rights movement. And I wonder, so I do want to tell you, um, I have a 12-year-old son, this white boy who sings rap and hip-hop songs mm-hmm, all day mm-hmm, long. And what mm-hmm. I see, I don't know, I mean, I think I would probably not like a lot of the words if I could hear them, and he even tells me that I wouldn't. But what he's, what he's getting is how that music gets in his body. Mm-hmm. And there's something humanizing about that, um, and delightful for him. That I, I so I, I don't know. I'm I'm watching that with great curiosity. But what you wrote about, and I didn't know. I, I guess this is if I maybe if I'd experienced this, I didn't know. You wrote about how this little light of mine was sung at Selma. Mm-hmm. Would you Would you tell that story as an example of 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 music and the movement? You're going to have to remind me a little bit more. Well, you just said that. So it was a moment of resistance and protest in a way, but it's a very beautiful, gentle song. And that rather than saying, Governor Wallace, give us our freedom, it was about singing this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, Governor Wallace. (laughs) that That was so much part of the way in which the songs try to encourage us not simply to be reactors, but to indicate our own initiative and our own power so that instead of saying, you know, you honky governor, we're going to, you know, you know good, um, and we're going to do this or that to you, the the basic deepest word was whatever you do we're going to let our light shine god gave it to us we're going to let it shine was the way that the words went and that determination to make our own action and our own commitment the focal point rather than a reaction to the moves of others, was, I think, one of the most beautiful things mm. about, about the singing. But, you know, Krista, let me mention another of those songs that recently came up in a New York Times uh, article. I don't know if you saw this. Uh, maybe about a month ago, someone was writing about this terminology that we've taken about a kumbaya moment, Mm -hmm. where we have made fun, in a way, of this whole experience that came out of the black church of the singing of that song. And whenever somebody jokes about kumbaya, uh, my mind goes back to the Mississippi summer experience where the movement folks in Mississippi were inviting co-workers to come from all over the country, especially student types, to come and help in the process of voter registration and freedom school teaching and taking great risks on behalf of the transformation of that state and of this nation. 
And I was deeply involved uh, with the orientation uh, that took place uh, at the uh, Women's College in Oxford, Ohio uh, at that time. And there were two weeks of orientation. The first week um, was the week in which uh, Schwerner and Goodman and their beloved brother, uh, Jimmy, were there. And they left that first week, and it was during the time that they had left the campus that they were first arrested, then released, and then murdered. And the word came back to us uh, at the orientation that the three of them had not been heard from. Mm. And immediately we knew, those of us who were leading the, re- the uh, orientation, that they were probably dead. And Bob Moses, uh, the magnificent uh, leader of the orientation and of so much of the work in Mississippi got up uh, at the point when we got the word in that gathering and stopped things and told these hundreds of predominantly white young people who had come to do what they felt was good, necessary, uh, citizenship kind of work uh, there uh, in Mississippi. Almost all of them had never been to Mississippi. He told them about the word that we had received. And he also told them that if any of them felt that at this point they needed to return home or to their schools, we would not think less of them at all, Hmm. but would be grateful to them for how far they had come. But he said, let's take a couple of hours just for people to spend time talking on the phone with parents or whoever, whatever you need to do uh, to try to make this decision and make it now. And what I found as I moved around among the small groups that began to gather together to help each other figure out what to do was that in group after group, people were singing, Kumbaya, come by here, my Lord. Somebody's missing, Lord. Come by here. We all need you, Lord. Come by here. And I could never laugh at kumbaya moments after that because I saw then that almost no one went home from there. This whole group of people decided that they were going to continue on the path that they had committed themselves to. And a great part of the reason why they were able to do that was because of the strength and the power and the commitment that had been gained 
through that experience of just singing together, mm. kumbaya. Oh, thank you for sharing that. You know, I was listening to um, I was listening to the BBC in the recent weeks, and they were, you know, they're watching us from afar, <laughs> mm-hmm. and they were interviewing uh, a journalist about what's is it about this moment in American history, which seems yes. very tumultuous. And mm-hmm. the question was, is it really more violent and more despairing than it's been before? Or does this happen repeatedly? And the comparison was made with the 1960s. And they said, look, there was a lot of social turmoil then. There were assassinations, right? I mean, assassination, many assassinations. But... Um, So maybe this is not so dark after all. We just need to get into perspective. And this journalist said, and I just want to know what you think. He said that he thought the difference between the 1960s and now uh, was that even though there was incredible tumult and violence, it was at the very same time a period of intense hope. And um, people could see that they were moving towards goals and that that's missing now. What do you think about that analysis? Hmm. Krista, I think that that is such a complicated kind of issue that I can only pick at it and tease it out and Mm -hmm. play with it in the best sense of play. (laughs) I think that what I see now is the fact that All over this country, wherever I go, and of course where I go tends to be sort of self-selective because I am most often going into situations where people are operating out of a sense of hope and possibility. Hmm where in their local situations, whether it be Detroit or Atlanta or campus someplace or church community in Philadelphia, that there are women and men and young people who are operating out of hope, that they really believe in the possibilities that come to them from their own connection to the history of hope, as it were, Mm. and to the vision that they have of who they are and who they could be. My sense is that in the 60s, there was probably a larger kind of canopy uh, of hope Mm. uh, that we could see and we could identify and that people could name and focus on. Now, we are in 
particular spots, locations, sometimes seemingly isolated. But I feel that there are points, focal situations where that is still available and where people are operating from that. So I think that it is not simply the matter of hope or no hope. I have a feeling that one of the deeper transformations that's going on now is that for the white community of America, there is this uncertainty growing about its own role, its own control, its own capacity to name the realities Mm. that it has moved into a realm of uncertainty that it did not allow itself to face before. Up to now, uncertainty was the experience of the weak, the poor, the people of color, that that was our realm. But now, for all kinds of political, economic reasons, for all kinds of psychological reasons, that uncertainty and unknowingness is permeating what was the dominant so-called society. That breaking apart is, for me, more likely the source of the anxiety, the fear, the anger, the unwillingness to give in the need to have something that they can hold on to and say, this is the way and it's got to be our way or we will all die. And I think that that's the place that we are in and that's even more the reason why we've got to figure out what was King talking about when he was seeing the possibility of a beloved community Mm. and recognize that maybe for some of us that cannot come until some of us realize that we must give up what we thought was only ours in order for all of us to find new possibilities in the building of a of a beloved nation. Can there be a beloved nation? Why don't we try and see? There's a question that you that you pose in your writing that you've posed in recent years, is America possible? Mm. Which kind of echoes back to your your assertion that we need more than civil discourse now. We need we need to more fully realize what it means to be a democracy. And I just wonder also by way of bringing this down 
maybe to the ground a little bit, hearing some more stories, you know, when you answer that question, is America possible, what, what people come to mind, what answers come to mind in the form of life that you see, the hope that you see embodied? Krista, one of the great benefits of living almost to my 80th birthday is the great privilege of being able to meet and be with all kinds of marvelous people. And so when I think about the possibilities of America, I think about the possibilities that these women and men, especially young people, have demonstrated uh, for me. Where I spend a lot of my time in places like Philadelphia, where on the Northwest Side, I've been deeply involved with a church community there, a Methodist church led by a magnificent uh, woman pastor who has embraced the young people of the community in ways that churches often do not. Young people who are considered marginalized Mm -hmm. have become the heart of her work, and they have seen their own possibilities. I remember when a group of them came out to visit us at our project uh, in Denver. Uh, They were true Philadelphians. They were dressed from the Philadelphia streets. They (laughs) moved like Philadelphians, and they ran into some very interesting encounters (laughs) in in Denver. Uh. But at one point, two of them, one young man, one young woman, took me aside and said, could we talk to you for just a minute? And they had started to call me Uncle Vincent. And they said to me, Krista, Uncle Vincent, why do you love us so? And what I saw was that they had this great capacity to know that they were being loved to feel it in their being and through later conversation that we had to recognize that that meant they had power and responsibility to do something for their community that had not been done for them. Mm. I see young people like that all over this country. And I know that they exist I know some of the adults 
who worked with them in places like Greensboro, North Carolina, in Detroit, Michigan, on the reservations in New Mexico, out in the L.A. area. We've got working connections uh, with young people and their adult nurturers in all of those kinds of situations. And because I see that, feel that, receive their returning love, I know they are capable of building the beloved community. And so it is that kind of constant engagement with people who have been considered hopeless, useless, purposeless, just like I saw them in the Deep South, people who were considered backward, unable to do anything, became the creators of a new possibility for the whole nation. Hmm. And when I think about Tiananmen Tiananmen Square and Prague, I realized that those folks in Mississippi and Alabama who were considered useless were able to speak to the world. Mm. I see that again and again and again right in this country, see it with young people, see it with those who are loving them into new possibilities. And so that's why, for me, the only answer that I can give to the question that I raise is yes, as we make it possible. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, that connection, again, love is a word like, like the phrase kumbaya that can get mm-hmm. dismissed if we try oh, to yes. introduce it into public oh, speech. Yes. And that connection right. that you draw, that you drew when we first started talking about your own childhood between love and being loved and then the power to take responsibility. Yes. That this is a practical thing. I know that's what King... And you, people like you and others modeled also in the 60s. I mean, I was very struck reading this piece you wrote um, for this little book essay called Deepening the American Dream. And you were telling a story about, I believe this was a demonstration in Denver of young people and that it was around immigration issues. And these were 21st century issues. And it was a 21st century racial mix. It was a, a lot of Latinos. And you, you, here's, so what I, I love this, this image of also how, this love is is nourishing and challenging at the same time, right? You you talked yes. about seeing the signs that they were carrying or the T-shirts, I am not a criminal. And you write, I wanted to put my arms around some brown young shoulders and say, yes, yes, you are absolutely right, dear nephew, dear niece, you are not a criminal. But now tell me, who are you, right? Are you ready mm-hmm. to become a leader in the struggle to make America possible, to take responsibility for leading our nation? Um, you know, and then another place you say, when I saw the inspired declaration emblazoned in hundreds of moving banners announcing, we are America, again, I wanted to engage the carriers with, yes, yes, that is marvelous. And what is the dream of America, your dream, the one that lies deep in your heart? I just, I just loved that. Good, good. <laughs> well, those, those are, Meg, that's one of the great privileges of living in Denver, Mm. to be in the heart of that Latino, Mexican-American 
Chicano community and to see them as central to America's future. Again, not a minority, but central to America's future. That's a great challenge uh, and a beautiful challenge. You know, something that became clear to me also, clearer than before in your writing, was we talked about the spirituality that was absolutely at the heart of uh, of the movement. Um, and of course, Martin Luther King was a was a Christian preacher, right? But but that spirituality is. I mean, here's a way you described Howard Thurman, right? You, you know, it, it was very much, in fact. It was very diverse. I also think that's kind of a dry word, not really big enough. Mm -hmm, But, mm -hmm. you know, you said Thurman's faith was not a door that closed in on him as something to be kept, protected, and guarded. It was an opening door that opened out into the spirit, faith, dreams, and seeking of others. So I think even in that, that spirituality can very much speak to this world we inhabit now. Mm. Yeah, and you're speaking about Thurman, what... I remember whenever I think of him and the kind of conversation that we are having about spirituality and the language that we use and the concepts that we use and how religion so often seems to want to capture these things, Thurman had this wonderful statement that he used to make, and I carry it with me in my being. He said, the things that we find in religion, the best things that we find in religion are not true because they're in religion. They're in religion because they're true. And he was always conjuring up that image of a deep, deep, well of resources down beneath all religious expressions Mm. that comes up like a fountain underneath them and expresses itself through them but cannot be captured by them. And I think that it is important, especially as we continue to build a country filled with so many religious and spiritual expressions, to just get away from the idea that any one of them will have the privilege of being the religious expression Mm. of this country. I think we are on the path to something much more exciting (laughs) and (laughs) frightening Mm. and building. Mm. Well, this is really just such a wonderful thing and I feel like we've traveled a lot of ground. Is there anything else you'd want to say that I I haven't asked you about that's been on your mind? Oh, my dear. (laughs) Yes, for the next day we could talk about (laughs) on my mind. Here is one of the things that I am constantly wrestling with and trying to encourage others to wrestle with, uh, Krista, and that is... What do we do with our religious institutions? I'm sorry, with our educational institutions, Mm -hmm. whether they be religious or secular, 
to prepare children to even know that they have responsibility for building a constantly new and renewed democratic nation, a beloved community. Hmm. How do we build that into the very beginnings of their educational experience? I started off just by talking about the mother and the baby at her breast, or talking about what I found in my childhood. How do we create now the institutions which will nurture in children this sense that they are called to create a more perfect union, that that is their crucial calling as citizens. Indeed, the question is, how do we create an education that helps them to know that they are, before consumers, they are citizens? And to begin the conversation about what does it mean to be a citizen of a democratic, multiracial society in the midst of a world that is in need of the beloved community at least as much as we need it here uh, in this country. Mm. So that education for democracy and education for citizenship and the role of schools and the role of religious institutions in developing that education is what uh, is still very much on my mind and which we could talk about. For another day. (laughs) Yes. Yes. That's, oh, you know, Krista, let me mention two books that I've been working with over the last uh, period. One of them is that magnificent book, and I think that if you haven't interviewed her, you really ought to. Uh, Michelle Alexander has written this marvelous, challenging work called The New Jim Crow on mass incarceration and what it is doing to especially the young people of color in American society, and therefore, of course, what it's doing to American society. I think that's a book that people ought to wrestle with in churches and schools and on public radio programs uh, like this. The other book is a book that I don't think is as strong but still important is a book by Eugene Robinson called Disintegration, talking about the changes that have gone on in what we've called the black community from the 1960s up to now, in which there are definite transformations going on. And for Robinson, as for me, one of the most important of those transformations is that there is a major segment now of black people in America who he calls the abandoned Mm. in especially our urban poverty-filled communities and whose children and people are they 
and whose responsibility are they? And can our president be let off the hook by constantly talking about the middle class and not talking about the poor, the desperately poor, and what shall we be with them and for them? So okay. I wanted to mention those All two right. books. All right. I've made note of them, and my producers will make note of them. I We need to finish. I think we're out of time. Okay. Um, Dr. Harding, we, um, we, I, I'd love to hear your uh, – we've got some ideas for music from the conversation, but I think we may send you an email asking for other songs, music that – Kind of the soundtrack of the story yes, we've been talking yes, about. So yes. think about that, and I we will, will we will um, take that in as we create the program. And I think we're running out of production time, but this has been such an honor and a pleasure. And I, I can't I have thank been you enough. Very glad, as I told you at the beginning. <laughs> I really appreciate so much what you've been trying to do, my dear. Mm. And thank you for the opportunity to engage in this conversation, Mm. this democratic conversation with you. And we will let you know what's happening with and when it's airing and send you a CD and all of that. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Blessings. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.